Please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52. We're going to spend the next few minutes thinking about and reflecting upon that passage just read a few minutes ago. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, would you be pleased to meet with your gathered people now? Father, we need a word from the outside. We need your word and your spirit to be at work, showing us what we are to believe about you and what duty you ask of your people. Father, would you be pleased to open our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts. May your word before us be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now some of you may be wondering, why an Easter text today on Christmas Day? Well, it's due to the inseparable relationship between the death and resurrection of Jesus and his incarnation. Now why was Jesus born? Children, have you ever asked that question? Why did Jesus come? Why did the second person of the Trinity appear in the flesh? The Apostle John writes in his first letter these words. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The author to the letter of the Hebrews provides some even more information. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we read this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that would be Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject. To lifelong slavery. Jesus, in other words, delivered his people by destroying the works of the devil through death, his own death. As Rob mentioned earlier, in a word, Jesus was born in order to die. And as we will see his death, will be a sacrificial and substitutionary death on behalf of and in the place of his people. Now there's another reason for this text, because we're at the end of a four-week Advent series called the Servant Songs of the Messiah. We've been taking a break now for the last four weeks from our current series in Mark. And as those who have been here for the past three weeks, you've realized that what we've been doing is an extended commentary on one verse in Mark. We haven't left Mark at all. We've actually just gone deeper in Mark through Isaiah. The last verse, this time last month at the end of November, the last verse that we considered before taking a break was Mark 10 verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's not only a key verse in Mark's gospel, that is a key verse in all 
Scripture. Now, where did Jesus get his human understanding that he had come to serve, to do the work of a servant? Well, much of his understanding can be found, I believe, in the book of Isaiah. And as we study the book of Isaiah together, much of our understanding is found there as well. We've been looking at these four servant songs or poems found in Isaiah, calling them the servant songs of the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised king and priest, deliverer of God's people. And these four songs have been a progressive revelation of the person and work of this servant. It's an unfolding portrait every week, every song that goes by, more and more of the picture of this servant has been filled in. Song number one was from Isaiah 42, and we saw there that the servant is presented. We are to look at him, his character, and his calling. The second song is found in Isaiah 49, where we see that the servant is sent, and we are to listen to him. With those first two songs in mind, we are to stop, look, and listen because here comes the mighty servant of the Lord. Last week in song number three, Isaiah 50, we saw that the servant, the servant who was presented, who is sent, is obedient. We saw his obedience was learned, tested, and vindicated. Isaiah is an 8th century B.C. prophet. And he wrote this prophecy, all 66 chapters, written somewhere around 700 B.C. And Isaiah, if you take all of those 66 chapters and boil them down to two themes, it's this, coming judgment and coming salvation. Isaiah is the most quoted book in the New Testament. It's, some have said, the Romans of the New Testament because of the gospel clarity in Isaiah. Children, we have seen promise after promise made in the Old Testament and in Isaiah, and we've seen them made and we see the New Testament where they have been kept and fulfilled. Now we see that this is about the servant of the Lord. Well, who is the servant of the Lord? Is it Israel, the nation? Is it a believing remnant of Israel? Is it a man? Well, we've seen thus far that Israel, the official servant of the Lord, is bound, blind, and sinful. Israel as a nation is unfit to be, as it were, in the Lord's service. And it's not a mystery for us who is this servant because the New Testament makes it clear it recognizes Jesus as the fulfillment of Isaiah's expectation for God's servant. The mystery is no longer. Place after place in the Old Testament show us that this servant is none other than Jesus. Now this fourth servant song of the Messiah is the most quoted and alluded to Old Testament text in the New Testament. Forty-six times scholars believe that it's either directly quoted or alluded to. In particular, not just the book of Isaiah, but this passage in particular has been thought of as the fifth gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah. And in particular, Isaiah 
52 and 53. Some have called this passage the crown jewel of Isaiah's theology. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century British preacher in London, said this, quote, This is one of the chapters that lies at the very heart of the scriptures. It is the very holy of holies of divine writ. Let us therefore put off our shoes from our feet, for the place whereon we stand is especially holy ground. These verses have helped the apostles make sense of the significance of Jesus' death. Before Jesus made that statement in Mark 10, 45, he told the disciples not once, not twice, but three times that what? He was going to be betrayed. He would suffer. He would die. He would be crucified. He would be killed. But... He would also be raised again. Jesus spoke three times of the necessity of his suffering, death, and resurrection. Look with me at this text. There's a structure to this poem. There are five stanzas of three verses each. Chapter 52, 13 through 15. Chapter 53, 1 through 3, 4 through 6, 7 through 9, and 10 through 12. The first stanza is an introduction and summary of the entire song. And as we will see as you go through, the second and fourth stanzas provide the facts. And the third and fifth stanzas provide the interpretation of the facts. In other words, it's suffering observed and suffering explained. A couple of weeks ago, we made the observation that most of us, when we're honest, don't think very much of servants. We look down upon servants because they're doing things for us that we don't want to do. Well, think about this. Not just a servant is looked down upon. How about a substitute? Kids... When your regular teacher is gone, do you like it when the substitute is there? All of us, I think, in sports want to be what? Starting lineup, first string, right? We don't want to be a substitute. In fact, we'll get off the field if we're injured. The sub only comes in when we're hurt or winded. But by the end of this song, I believe that we're all no longer going to be able to look down upon this servant. We're not going to be able at all to look down upon this substitute. Our approach to the text this morning will be to identify and examine three aspects of the person and work of the servant that are present throughout this fourth servant song of the Messiah. His suffering his sacrifice, and his success. Let's take a look first at the suffering of the servant. But before we look at his suffering, first notice how the song begins. Verse 13, chapter 52. Behold my servant. Sound familiar? It's an echo of how the first song in Isaiah 42 started. Behold my servant. 
Look at verse 14. He's unrecognized. People are astonished. They are shocked. They're startled. Because he wasn't who they were looking for. This, suff, this servant was unrecognized. But look with me at chapter 53, verse 2. Not only is he unrecognized, he's unimpressive. He had no form or majesty. He had no beauty. In other words, this servant was ordinary. Ordinary. You want to build a church? You want to grow a church? What should you do? Bigness, flash, excitement, or ordinariness? Ordinary means of grace. The word, the sacraments, prayer. That's how God has chosen to establish and build his ordinary church. Because as we will see, it is a church that was established and built by a very unrecognized unimpressive, ordinary man as the world viewed him. Not only is he unrecognized, not only is he unimpressive, look with me at verse 3. He's rejected. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. He didn't meet people's expectations in John chapter 1 what he came to his own people and what he was not received by his own people they didn't recognize him but to all who did receive him to those who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God from initial astonishment to outright rejection of this servant well, what we hear and see in this song is not just the suffering of the servant, but also the sacrifice of the servant. It was a suffering that in the words of Paul that we heard in our New Testament reading was obedience, how far? To the point of death, even death on a cross. The sacrifice of the servant. First, a few comments about the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. In the book of Leviticus, we see that if a sinful man would be able to approach a holy God, he must sacrifice a spotless victim in his place. This is how atonement for sin was made. And so substitution is not this, and sacrifice is not a new thought to the Israelites. It was enshrined in the law of Moses. Lambs and other animals had to be sacrificed in the place of sinners in order for sinners to be in a right relationship with their creator, a holy God. Here we see the servant makes the ultimate sacrifice. Those of you that... Um, Remember, around the time of Veterans Day, veterans of all stripes are remembered and recognized. But on Memorial Day, veterans who have paid that ultimate price, who have, who have got the ultimate sacrifice, their own death, they're the ones we remember. This is the servant 
Look with me at stanza 4, verses 7 through 9 of Isaiah 53. He was taken away. He was taken away at the middle of verse 8. Toward the end of verse 8, he was cut off out of the land of the living. If you don't get it by cut off from the land of the living, you get it from cut out of the land of the living. He's cut off out. It's death in view. Verse 8 also, he was stricken. He's stricken. Go back to verse 5 and you see language of being wounded, crushed, and stripes. Not just wounds that get cured, wounds that lead to death. A crushing that is not reversible. So it's not only the ultimate sacrifice of this servant, but notice it's a sinless sacrifice. Look with me at verse 9. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The servant is as blameless as God's people are blameworthy. Not only is this ultimate sacrifice a sinless sacrifice as expected and demanding, but also it is a silent sacrifice. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. So he got really mad and angry and yelled, No, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that, is, that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth three times the silence of the sacrifice. I don't know about you all, But if somebody is stepping on me, not only will I, as it were, yell because it hurts, I will go after that person in my flesh. Here, the servant is silent. And as we read in 1 Peter, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. But what did he do? He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. But here, here is the center of gravity. Right at the center, stanza 3, verses 4 through 6. It is the substitutionary sacrifice. Look with me at verse... Um, Verses 4 through 6. Look at all the pronouns. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for what? Our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. The use of pronouns here is the key to understanding. Here is this substitutionary sacrifice. He covers our sin and he exhausts God's wrath. It's not just the what that Christ died. It's the why. What's the bottom line? He died 
for us. Many people know still the facts of the Bible. The facts that there was a Palestinian Jew of the first century who lived and taught and did miracles and was arrested and tried and put to death. Many people believe the facts, the what. But it's when you're not just moved by the what, but you're moved by the why. That's a Christian, knowing the why, not just the what. Paul sums up what's taking place here in one verse in his letter to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For, hear the pronoun, our sake, he made God, made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the two-way representation. Jesus gets what we deserve. We get what Jesus deserves. He gets the curse that we deserve. We get the blessing that he deserves. It's the two-way exchange. The suffering and the sacrifice of the servant was not in vain. It was not a failure in any way. Although putting on just the world's lenses, are you kidding me? Abandoned by his friends, accused by his enemies. Everybody runs and hides except for a few women at the time of his death. It was not a failure. Rather, the servant is vindicated and his work is declared to be a success. Well, let's take a look, finally, at the success of the servant. Notice how the song begins with a note of triumph and it ends in a resounding victory symphony. Look again. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Verses 10 through 12 are this triumphant victory. Notice it starts off with that, that note of victory, but from there on out it is humiliation. It is suffering. It is going down and lower. But it goes up to glory. It goes up to exaltation. Jesus, through this, is being exalted through his humiliation. His glory comes not from attractive physical presence. His glory does not come from the numbers of followers he has, the radio stations he's on, the books he's written. His glory is his humiliation to his willingness to experience the disgrace and judgment due to others. The women are studying the lessons from the upper room in John. And one lesson that Jesus teaches his disciples before his crucifixion is that God will glorify him and he will glorify his father through his suffering. Notice also not only this movement of the song from suffering to glory, from humiliation to exaltation, but notice throughout the sovereign will of the Lord. 
verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. But also it will be the will of the Lord to lift him up. What does Jesus do? He entrusts himself to the one who judges justly. Just as we are to do that as well. And notice the spoils of victory. The spoils of war belong to the victor. And my friends, for those of you who have not encountered it yet, the Christian life is a war. As our confession of faith says that until that day when we are in glory, we are involved in an irreconcilable war. But we know the outcome. We know the the end. We know the victory. It's been announced, as it were, from the beginning. The many share in the victory of the one. The champion conquers. How? Not through might, but through weakness, through his death. Go back with me to verse 15 of chapter 52. What does he do? So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Sprinkling is the participation in the benefits of a sacrifice that is indicated by the sprinkling of blood. And it's not just to individuals, but he's a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nations. Now, as these four servant songs of the Messiah draw to a close, we see that the servant who is presented, who is sent, who is obedient, is also the servant who is victorious. My friends, if you are trusting in Christ alone for salvation, you really are on the winning team. It's like I like to remind myself, I love to watch a close football game tape delayed. I love to know the outcome and then enjoy the the struggle, knowing ultimately that the good guys win. And we have that before us. We have great confidence. Many of you I know are in difficulty, struggling We have a sure and certain hope. We have a confidence. Well, to wrap up, let's review and revisit our need for a substitute. Are any of you right now willing to stand before a holy and righteous God on your own performance? How about this past week? This past 24 hours. How about this last hour? Who of us can stand before a holy and righteous God on our own merit? What we have done. For those of you who recognize your need for a substitute. That you are out on the field and you're getting beat up. And you're waving your hand over the coach to say... Take me out. My friends, if you recognize your need for a substitute, aren't you glad, so glad that you were taken off the field and replaced, so to speak, by someone who could do what you couldn't do? Not only that, 
aren't you glad that that same substitute who does what you couldn't do also gets pummeled for your failure to do what you've been called to do? Where do we get a substitute like that? He should be on the starting lineup. Did you notice those two back-to-back questions of this song? Chapter 53, verses 1 and 2. It's important not only to read, but also to ask ourselves these questions. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Our text has shown us That God, as Paul would say, is both just and the justifier of the one who what? Who has faith in Christ Jesus. Who has believed what they heard from us? What are the prophets preaching? They're preaching the gospel. Do you believe the message? The message that Jesus announced To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord, the power of the Lord. Who is the arm of the Lord? It's Jesus. Do you see him? Do you see him? Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we were so wicked and sinful that Jesus had to die for us. Yet, Father, we also gratefully acknowledge that we are so loved and treasured that Jesus was glad to die for us. Indeed, those who have faith in Jesus are the joy set before him as he headed to the cross. Father, we are thankful that Jesus took your curse so that we could receive your blessing. May your word that we have just heard take up residence in our life and change us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, and our substitute. For your glory and for the good of your people now and forever. Amen.